that going. Let that breathe for a little bit. Come on. All right. That's good. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Gosh, it was, I can't tell you how much that meant to me, that little, that little video thing that got put together. It, the enemy, Gabe and I were talking this morning. We said, you know what we need to do? Every Sunday morning, we have uh, an Alexa device, and we put reminders on it, like, wake up, do this, take that. We thought, we need one every Sunday morning that just says, pray against the devil, because he's coming after you this morning. And without fail, and we know that it happens every day, all day, but there's something about a Sunday morning that just takes all those little darts that come your way and just amplifies them like a hundred times, and that's because we're bringing the gospel of Jesus, and we're bringing it to the world, and we're bringing it to you, our family, and, and the enemy hates that. The enemy hates that, and so I know that he comes against us. But before I get on with the message, I want to also acknowledge that we have Pastor Tom, and we have Pastor Scott, and we have Pastor Lisa. They are pastors too, and they put themselves in the crosshairs, and the enemy comes after them too. So let's give them a little extra love today. Be sure, <laughs> Be sure to say hi to them. Be sure to lift them up, shake a hand, take them to lunch. Um, whatever, whatever you can do, because uh, being a pastor puts you square in the crosshairs, and that's that's what we deal with. But it is the joy of the Lord that's our strength, and and you, our family, and that and it helps us to get through it. So it is, it's an amazing blessing that we don't ever want to take for granted. So thank you guys, thank you all for being here. Thank you out there online for uh, joining us here today. Um, and thanks real quick to Pastor Scott for his teaching last week. Um, if you heard that, it was an amazing message on the kingdom of God. Uh, and if you missed it, go back and check it out. You can check it out right through our website or our YouTube channel and check out the archives. Watch that message. Not only was it his first message officially preaching as a pastor, um, but he did a great job talking about the kingdom aspects of what we're talking about. So much of Christianity gets boiled down to salvation, you know, and our personal Jesus and my salvation, my Jesus, my relationship with Jesus. All those things are incredibly important. Do not get me wrong, but there's a bigger picture. There's a kingdom picture and our place in the kingdom is something that we don't always understand and that's probably because we don't always talk about it. Where we fall in this greater kingdom, it's so much greater than just an individual. If it was all about just an individual, the moment you gave your life to Christ, you would just be raptured and you'd go to heaven, it would be over. There's a kingdom picture, and that is bringing heaven to earth and what we can do as part of a greater, a greater thing that's happening around us. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today, the section of scripture that we're in, if you want to get your Bibles ready, we're in Mark 14, 66 to 72. It's a fairly short section. It's commonly called Peter denies Jesus. And most of us have probably heard a little bit of teaching at one point or another on, on all that. We're going to, we're going to go through it in depth today. But I started thinking about what is it that stops us in many cases, from bringing heaven to earth and from understanding 
our place in the kingdom. And really walking in that, and, and walking in that power, and walking in that authority that Jesus had died to give to us. He delegated that authority, that God-given authority to us so that we can be a force and we can be a power here on earth. And what is it that stops that? And I started thinking about all the different things that it could be. And you know what it boiled down to? It boiled down to the sin of pride. And you may think it's counterintuitive, like, oh, I, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm equipped to go out and do this or I'm equipped to go out and do that. But at some level it often comes back to pride because pride manifests in so many different ways. When we do our deliverance ministry, so many times it comes down to pride, things that you would never think. But that's how it manifests. And pride is tricky. Pride is tricky. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today. So I'm giving away a little bit of it, but I want you to think about that. In what ways does the sin of pride... See, we're like, un, unlike a lot of churches already, I've mentioned sin like six times already. It's important. We can't just pretend that that doesn't exist, and we can't pretend that the enemy doesn't use that against us in our lives. We have to be aware of it because it's out there. And the obvious ones, I could ask you to like, let's list some sins. And you go, okay, lust and greed and, you know, all these sorts of things. Okay, those are the obvious ones. And we all know that sin is a pride, but what does sin look like? Or what does pride look like in your life? Sure, it can look like being boastful and those sorts of things. And, and that's easy to pick out too. It's the more subtle ones that the enemy uses. And that keeps us from being, from being the true reflection of Jesus Christ that we should be to the world. That keeps us from that. So we're going to talk about that today. That's where we are. So Pastor Scott taught, taught last week, about this fairly meaty section of Scripture where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin ask Him, they just kind of point blank ask Him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? <coughs> Without fail, I start talking. I need a candy bar is what I need. No, 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 it's okay. I think a Snickers would really <coughs> help, help with that. Sorry. They ask him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And what does he answer? I am. Simple answer, I am. There's no, there's no boastfulness in that. There's no pride in that. It's a statement of fact. I am. And that one statement, two words, was more blasphemy than the entire Sanhedrin could take, at least from their standpoint. And, and they immediately just decide, okay, any of us that were on the fence about whether Jesus needs to be killed, needs to be crucified, that pushed us over because that's more than we can handle. That's all it took. So this mob that's just, call them just a bloodthirsty mob because that's what they're out for. And they're just looking for a reason to put Jesus to death. So we're going to get into this section from... Um, of scripture for today. I want to remind you, show that picture that Pastor Scott had up last week. Now this is a mock-up or, or an illustration of what Caiaphas's palace, the high priest, what his palace looked like inside the walls of Jerusalem. Now this is probably pretty close because they base these things on excavations that they do. 
And so they can see where the walls were and where things were. It's also a fairly typical layout for a, for a, uh, a priest's palace. That right in the middle is a courtyard. Now that courtyard is where Peter was standing as he looked into the upper rooms where Jesus was being tried. So I just want you to kind of have that image sort of in your mind. You can go ahead and pull that down. And I'm going to read this section, Mark 14, 66-72. I'm going to read the whole thing in its entirety and just picture in your mind what's going on. And then we'll get back and we'll get into it. All right, so verse 66. And while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the slave women of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were with Jesus the Nazarene as well. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The slave woman saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, you really are one of them, for you're a Galilean as well. But he began to curse himself and to swear, I did not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remarks to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he hurried on and began to weep. All right, many of us have heard that story. And we start thinking about what, what does it really mean other than just a historical account of this thing happened. The Bible is so amazing. The Bible is a chronology of many things in history. It's a story of the good news of Jesus and his ministry on earth. But every single piece within that greater story has a lesson to teach us. That's what this is. So let's get into the individual scriptures and let's watch this lesson kind of just pull out of the, of the scripture. Mark 14, 66. And while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the slave women of the high priest came. The word slave women there, it, it indicates in the Greek, and I won't go into it, but that it's a, it's a very young girl. She's probably maybe 14, 13 or 14, working in the high priest's palace. Now let's, <coughs> excuse me, before I go further, let's look at the arrogance of Peter. Now we all know that Peter, Peter's not a saint. Peter does a lot of things impulsively, does a lot of things without thinking about it. And that's where we can draw our lessons. Because anybody else out there act impulsively without thinking it through all the way? Okay, Peter's doing that. And let's look at what he did. Let's take a jump back a few scriptures. Mark 14, 54. This is when Jesus had been taken and they're taking him into the palace of the high priest. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. So I get it, it's cold. The time of year that it is, it's cold. You definitely needed a, a fire at night to stay warm. Um, but Peter, rather than trying to hide and stay in the distance, he just goes, well, I'm just, I'm just going to walk right in to the palace. And he walks right into that central courtyard, and he's sitting with, and Scripture calls it, or the translation says, officers. These aren't military officers. The Greek word in that is huperatus. 
which the definition of that in, in the Greek is an attendant. So it was basically the entourage of all the high priests and the, and the scribes and the elders, and they all had their little entourage around, and they are who was gathered in that courtyard down below. It wasn't army officers, but it was them. And so Peter probably thought, I could just blend in with them, and they won't even know that I'm not a servant of one of these other high priests. I can just blend in and sit there. And he's warming himself by the fire. He's not even just sitting quietly over at the side. He's warming himself by the fire. He sees no problem strolling right into the lion's den and just getting comfortable. He's either very, very brave or very, very stupid. Let's take a look and see which one it is. Mark 14, 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she, we're talking about the, the servant girl, right? Looked at him and said, you were with Jesus the Nazarene as well. Just the fact that she uses the term the Nazarene tells us that she's got immediate disdain for him. He's, a, he's picture the, the place in the world you like the least, and it'd be like, you're from there. So she's calling him a Nazarene, saying, you don't belong here. You're one of those scum people. Should not be in the palace of the high priest, for sure. She immediately calls him out. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us how she knew him or how she could tell, really, that he didn't belong there. But she calls him out. Peter now has a choice. He's basically got two choices. What are his choices? He can be honest and stand with Jesus and say, yes, I, I am. You could call me a Nazarene if you want. I am with Jesus. And he would suffer the consequences. Or he could lie and try and save his own skin. One is, is very, is a higher level of calling. I'm going to stand with Jesus Christ no matter what the consequences are. The other, pure flesh. I'm going to lie and save my own skin. Which one do you think he does? You've all heard the story. Mark 14, 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. That'd be our equivalent of, of saying, um, I can neither confirm nor deny, right? I, know, I, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. A couple things about this. Depending on the translation that you have, it's about 50-50, some translations right there in Mark 14, 68, they end with, and the rooster crowed. So if you're following along, your translation may say, and the rooster crowed. That would be the first time that a rooster crowed. But some don't have that. Mine, I use the New American Standard, it doesn't have that because when they went back and canonized Scripture, about half the manuscripts had that phrase, and the rooster crowed, and about the other half didn't. So... And it's not important theologically because we see later that it's inferred that it already happened. So it's not a big deal. I'm just explaining to you why some manuscripts don't have that phrase, and the rooster crowed. This denial, by the way, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about, was a common Jewish legal expression. So when he said that, that was understood. That's kind of my, my legal denial of what's happening right here. But he sees, he sees that he's in danger now. He's being called out. 
So he backs away. And that's what he said. And he went out onto the porch. So he left the courtyard, kind of went out onto the porch area, kind of where you'd go out to catch some fresh air or wherever you wanted to. And now he's escaped his close call and he's trying to, again, he's trying to, we, we get that he's trying to probably, I'm just going to lay low now. I'm going to go out here. But it's not working. Mark 14, 69, the slave woman saw him, that's, saw him again, and began once more to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Peter's pride had gotten him into great trouble. It made him think, I can get away with walking right into the lion's den and I'm going to be just fine. It reminds me of Proverbs 11:2 that says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Peter had let his pride walk him right into danger. He may have thought at this point that he was in the clear, but this girl, little 13 or 14 year old servant girl, may have been trying to gain favor with her boss, whoever that was. We don't know for sure, but she's persistent. Mark 14, 70. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders now, now there's a crowd gathered around. Now she's been loud enough, she's been vocal enough to where people are seeing her pointing out and who she's pointing to. After a while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, you really are one of them, for you're a Galilean as well. Now that, in Mark's typical, like Mark's just going to cut it, cut right to the chase here, we look at Luke and Matthew to add a little bit of information to what's going on here. Luke twenty-two fifty-nine tells us it was about an hour later. So about an hour from the first time that he went out onto the, onto the courtyard, or out of the courtyard it is, kind of escaping that immediate danger, it was about an hour later before they call him out again. So he had some time in between. It also tells us that this trial, this mock trial that Jesus was going through, um, lasted at least an hour, if not more. But this is plenty of time, plenty of time for, for Peter to have escaped completely if he wanted to. Seeing that he had walked himself into a dangerous situation, and he's getting called out, and he was able to back away, he could have escaped. But he didn't. He stayed there, and now he's getting caught out for it again. Matthew 27 tells us that it was specifically Peter's accent that gave him away as a Galilean. Failing again to seek wisdom, Peter continues to have all these opportunities to do the right thing, to seek the, to seek the voice of the Lord in prayer, to, to pray, to, to talk with his fellow disciples and try to do the right thing. But he again fails to do that. And what does he do? He falls back on what he knows, falls back on his own cleverness, which is probably served him fairly well in his life up to this point. He's like, I know, I'll talk my way out of it. So this is what he does. Mark 14, 71. But he began to curse himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. That curse and swear, by the way, isn't profanity like, like we would think. What he's doing is he's praying a curse on himself. It's like saying, may God strike me down if I'm lying. 
That's what that phrase means. You look that up in the Greek, and this is what's happening. Saying, may God strike me down, probably inwardly praying at the very same time, God, you know my heart, you know why I'm here, so I hope you don't take me at my word and strike me down. Another bit of arrogance. He's praying He's praying a curse on himself. If I'm lying, may God strike me down at the same time going, I know I'm lying. Lord, please don't strike me down. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. That's pride right there. I'm going to pray against something that I'm already doing and hoping that God's going to look the other way. Just one example. Because it's for a good reason, right? It's for a good reason. Lord, I'm lying because I want to save Jesus. I'm telling a bold-faced lie and calling a curse on myself. In your name, by the way, because I want to save your son, Jesus. Surely that's okay. It's not okay. Peter's prideful self-delusion catches up with him, as it always will. Mark 14, 72. And immediately... A rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he hurried on and began to weep. So on that first scripture that I said, and the rooster crows was at the end, this here it says specifically a rooster crowed a second time. So it's inferred that a rooster had already crowed. For those of you who are like, that doesn't make sense. If this weren't bad enough, and this, this really penetrated into my heart, as if all this weren't bad enough, he hurried on and began to weep. So his heart is breaking because he's like, Jesus told me this would happen. I said, there's no way it's going to happen. And it just happened. So his heart is breaking right now. But Luke's gospel adds just a tiny little phrase. Luke twenty-two sixty-one. It's the first half of twenty-two sixty-one. And it just simply says, and then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So this, in context, think about this. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. The rooster had just crowed the second time, and it broke Peter's heart. But at that moment, then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That word looked at in the Greek is emblepo, and it means to stare at, to stare intently at, like with a locked-in gaze, but to look with interest, love, or concern. So it's not like Jesus is looking down, seeing Peter and just going, hey, I know that guy, and then off it goes. He looks down and he sees Peter and he locks eyes with Peter in the courtyard down below. Show a picture of that courtyard. This is... This is um, Inside the walls of Jerusalem, this is the courtyard of the high priest's palace. Now, there were several courtyards, and this is probably not the courtyard because it has been built up over the thousands of years on top of, on top of itself. But it was very much like this. It's in the site where the other one was. The windows weren't there, obviously. But think about Peter and the other servants down below looking up into the windows, into the rooms up above, and seeing Jesus in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of all this persecution that he's going through, 
And Jesus looks down at Peter and he goes, I know. I know. In the midst of Jesus' trial, he's aware of Peter's struggle. And in that one look, he offers forgiveness to Peter. With just a glance. It's almost like Jesus is saying, forgive him for he knows not what he does, except that Peter should have known. Peter had plenty of opportunities to know. But here's the thing we don't often think of. Peter, in that moment, has joined with Judas. At that very moment, in the sin of turning his back on Jesus. We don't often think of Peter and Judas in the same, in the same breath. Judas did it for money. Peter did it for self-preservation, which is worse. Is one worse. See, God in His grace had given Peter so many warnings and so many opportunities to do the right thing. Over and over and over again, He continued to give him chances. Jesus' own very explicit warnings about what's going to happen. He didn't leave it in ambiguous terms. He said, this is going to happen. Peter could easily, should have known. How about the chance to pray for and with Jesus when they were in the garden? But instead of taking that time when Jesus went off, to, off by himself and was in so much anguish that he was, that he was literally praying to God and, and sweating blood. In that moment, what did Peter do? Fall to his knees and pray for his Lord and Savior? Pray for guidance on how to navigate this for his friend and for his Lord? He fell into his flesh and he fell asleep. Couldn't even stay awake. He had that opportunity to do it, but he gave into his flesh and fell asleep. The chance to be prudent and maybe gather together with his disciples after they got scattered, after Jesus was put in chains and taken away, it's, Scripture tells us they, they all scattered into the darkness, but they could have gathered together and like, let's, let's talk about what a good course of action is here. Let's pray about it. Let's meditate on it. Let's come up with some wisdom here. But instead, he just forges ahead with what he thinks is the right thing to do. And then the hour that he was given after the girl called him out. After the servant girl called him out the first time, he went out into relative safety. Had a whole hour there before they spotted him again. He could have again left. Don't know if he was sitting there trying to forge a plan, trying to hatch a plan, like what can I do? What can I swing from the rafters and take him out of there? What can I do? Knowing Peter, it was probably something like that. And then the last opportunity he had was this loving gaze of Jesus looking down at him. At the same time, calling out his sin, recognizing it, and forgiving it. With one look from Jesus, I see you, I see your struggles, I see your sin, and I forgive it. All with just a look. What was Peter's sin here? Already kind of gave it away a little bit, right? 
But that's one of those things where it's kind of sneaky. How is, how is all this that he's doing pride? You could say, well, he kind of maybe made some rash decisions. He thought he knew better. He was so certain that he would never betray Jesus to begin with. Remember all the chances that he had to recognize that I might not be as solid as I thought I was. Let's look back at the disciples' self-confidence because I think this goes to us. How certain can we be that if we were confronted with that opportunity that we would not ourselves deny Jesus? Now I know if somebody came to you here today, you would go, oh, of course, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. What about in the workplace? What about at school? Do we, if somebody confronted you, and it may not be a direct confrontation, do you acknowledge Jesus, yes or no? Many of us, most of us, would probably say yes, but it's the subtle things. Somebody's saying, oh, those people that, those people that believe in, in Jesus are just, are just weird. They're just, you know, they're just deluded. I, I believe in science. Not that I don't believe in science. Science is created by God. All the rules of the universe are created by God. He's the one that set up the rules that science works through. But when confronted with that, how many of us would just go, I'm just going to leave. I'm not going to engage in that conversation. In a way, in a subtle way, we're denying Jesus too. Let's look at the disciples' self-confidence issues here. Mark 14, 18 to 19. Remember, we're kind of flashing back here. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, remember what they said? Surely not I, with a question mark. Remember we talked about that? Not exactly rock-solid confidence. Then Mark 14, 27, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Another explicit warning that they could have been vigilant about, could have taken to heart, prayed about it, and watched for it. Here's a question. Should we pray when we know the outcome is inevitable? Right here, Scripture says, it is written. It is written means Jesus is quoting prophecy. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. How many times did Jesus smack down Peter for saying, surely there's got to be another way? And Jesus said, no, I've already told you this is how it's going to happen. Should we pray if the outcome is inevitable? I see most of you kind of like, Shaking a head. Yes, Jesus did it. What Jesus prayed was, Lord, if this is the way it has to happen, but if there's another way, I'd appreciate it. He's submitting himself fully to God's will as we all should. It's okay to pray for what we want. We should pray for what we want. If we're going through a trial, we should be praying that something good comes out of this trial, whether it's we come out of that trial 
or something good that we may never know comes out of that trial. But the point is we submit ourselves to God's will. Yes, pray. Even when the outcome seems inevitable, we continue to pray. That's what Jesus did. So finally then, going back to those warnings that he had, this one is specifically directed at Peter, if you remember it, Mark 14, 29-31. But Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter, remember Peter's response? Verse 31, but Peter repeatedly said insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing as well. He was pretty certain, wasn't he? But he ignored the clear warnings of Jesus. And here's what he did is he thought they applied to everyone else but him. I'm special. That's what Peter's thinking. Even if, now he's saying this in front of all his friends, all the other disciples. Even if they fall away, I won't. If that's not pride, I don't know what is. I've got something special about me that will keep me safe even though all these other people may fall away. We all think we know better. We all think, and I'm talking about us in this room, you out there online, we all think we know better than people who try to give us correction or advice. We'll listen to it. I will listen to your advice and I'll nod my head and I'll even act like, hey, that's a great idea. But in your mind, you're filtering it through, this is what I think is best. And if your advice happens to line up with what I think is best, well, then we're good. But if it's different, I'm going with what I think is best. There's a quote that I found from Mark Twain. Normally I quote C.S. Lewis, and I'll do that in a minute. Um, This is Mark Twain. Mark Twain said this, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. (laughs) If you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. But we all fall into that trap, that snare of pride. We all do at one point or another. What we need to do is use the Holy Spirit in us, that renewed spirit that we have, and say, okay, I recognize what I just did or what I just said or what I just thought. That's pride. I'm going to take that captive, and I'm not going to operate in that. The flesh is going to to flare up. It is not a failure when your flesh flares up like that. What's a failure is when we either partner with it or we don't recognize it. The victory comes in saying, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. That's the Holy Spirit in you because your flesh is going to go, yeah, you go. You know best. That's what happens to Peter here. When we have that thought, that wasn't right. That's the Spirit in us. We all think we know that rules and laws were meant for the other guy, especially the dumb ones, right? You ever seen a car battery with a warning on it that says, do not drink contents of battery. (laughs) You know why they have to have that? Because somebody did. 
But that kind of thinking is rooted in the spirit of pride. If you say to yourself, I would never fill in the blank, that is like the scent of blood in the water for Satan. Satan and his demonic legions will hear statements like that. I would never this. And that's blood in the water to them. They will come at you and they will do everything they can to prove you wrong, just like they did with Peter here. And it's not just Satan and his demons. We're told repeatedly throughout our lives, over and over and over again, that we should boost our self-confidence. We should bolster our self-confidence. We should instill self-confidence in our kids. I did a Google search on books on self-confidence. You know how many results it returned back? 244 million. Self-confidence, self-confidence, self-reliance. We're told over and over again, we should foster that in our kids and we should do everything we can to, to show that to the world and to our kids. Meanwhile, in Scripture... Pride and arrogance specifically are mentioned over 450 times. 1 Samuel 2.3 says, Do not go on boasting so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. Ooh. This is different than confidence in Jesus. That's where our confidence should lie. Confidence in Jesus. There are a million scriptures. I want to pull you out my three favorite on confidence in Jesus. Hebrews 13, 6. So, <clears throat> so that we are conf so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's confidence in God. Philippians 1 6. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began that he who Start over. Yes. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. That's confidence in Christ and His work. And then here's my personal favorite. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some praise their chariots and some their horses but we will praise the name of the Lord, our God. Amen. See, this section of Scripture that we just went through, it's short, but it's all about how Peter let his self-reliant nature, his self-confident nature, his all figured out and forged through somehow kind of nature, let it get him in trouble. When a little prayer and a little humility could have helped him with a different outcome. Now, it wouldn't have made a different outcome for Jesus, but it would have helped Peter. Now, for those of you who are worried about, like, whatever became of Peter? Most of you know what became of Peter. But in John 21, 15 to 17, it's after the resurrection. Jesus comes back and shows himself to the disciples, and he asks Peter. Remember the scripture? John 21, 15 to 17, he asks Peter, do you love me? What's his answer? Okay. 
And what does Jesus say then? Feed my sheep. How many times does Jesus say, do you love me? Three times. How many did Peter deny him? Three times. It equals the denials of Peter is the affirmation of Jesus saying, this is who you are. And I forgive you and I trust you and your mistake does not mean you're disqualified from everything that I have for you. Just as our mistakes Our actions, whether they're prideful or anything else, when we repent of those, as Peter clearly did, our mistakes are just that. They're our mistakes. Jesus forgives us as many times as we make mistakes, again and again. They do not disqualify you from what God has for you. But pride is a powerful tool of Satan, and it can manifest in so many ways. I want to read you this. We're almost there. We're almost there. Bear with me. How am I doing on time? I'm way over, but I'm almost there. Chapter 8. This is C.S. Lewis. I'm going to read you a a paragraph from chapter 8 of The Great Sin. It's called The Great Sin. It's from Mere Christianity. Anybody read that? If you haven't, it's a great book. Chapter 8. The Great Sin from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I now come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which, with which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leaves to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Our weapons against it are simple. They're simple and they're instantly effective. Church, they are instantly effective. Number one, I'm just going to boil it down to four. There's, there's millions of them. I'm going to boil it down to four that are, I think are bite-sized and we can remember these. Number one, prayer. Prayer. 2 Corinthians 10 talks about the weapons of our warfare are not, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That happens through prayer. That's what that is. You cannot simultaneously pray for someone and look down on them. Prayer is the very act of humility. Number two, gratitude. James 1.7, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights 
with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Gratitude. If you spend your life in an attitude, it's a bumper sticker, an attitude of gratitude, but if that's where your heart is, you will be humble. It's very hard to be prideful if you're so thankful for everything that you have. Number three is closely related to it. It's humility. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Humility is a great defense against pride. Number four, and this is what the gospel of Mark is all about. Be a servant. Be a servant. Matthew 20, 26 to 28. Jesus said, it's not this way among you, but whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you have an attitude of servanthood, just like Jesus taught us, pride is going to have a hard time finding its way. Unless you're like, I am the best servant you have ever seen. So I suppose there's a way. I myself am the most humble person you're ever going to meet. It's sneaky. It's really sneaky how it gets in there. Let me close just by restating the last line in that C.S. Lewis paragraph on pride. Pride leads to, leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And I would add that you're made in the image of God. Pride has no place in your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that your word is steadfast and true, and it cuts right to our heart. Lord, sometimes it's painful to see where we have strayed from your teaching, strayed from the things that you teach us, and your spirit in us testifies that pride has no place. So, Lord, I give up my spirit of pride to you. Show me those places and those ways in my life where I have let the spirit of pride manifest itself. Pinpoint that. Lord, help me to root that out. Help me to dig it out by the roots and throw it in the trash heap where it belongs because the spirit of pride is a killer. The spirit of pride is sneaky, but the spirit of pride keeps me from the best of what you have for me. So, Lord, help me to see those places. Help me to see that hidden pride. And, Lord, I repent of that right now in the name of Jesus. I want that spirit of pride replaced with the spirit of humility, with the spirit of gratitude. Father, help me to see life and everything that comes my way through a spirit of humility and gratitude because that's what your son Jesus modeled on this earth. And that's what I want to be, a reflection of Jesus to this world. We thank you so much. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to take communion right now. Um, you are welcome to take communion. You don't have to be a member here. If you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and the blood of the new covenant, if you say yes, I say yes to that new covenant, 
I'm thankful to what Jesus did to give himself for me, to reconcile me to the Father. Then we invite you to take communion. We'll have two stations. We'll just have this one over here uh, with John and Steph Peterson, two of our elders will be over here serving. Gabe and I will be on this side. We'll have wine up front. If you prefer self-serve or prefer juice, we have that at the station right over here next to the windows. But while we worship, let's take time. Worship, sing the songs, let them sink into your heart. But let's take this time. If God is doing a work in you and he's rooting out some pride that's in there, let's take all the time we need to get that out so that we can then become a good place to plant that spirit of humility that Jesus died to give us. Amen? Thank you, guys.